Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, my conversation with a fierce singer-songwriter raised in Texas and Mississippi with a powerhouse voice shaped by decades singing in smoky bars, who writes cutting confessional Americana gems that have won her a Grammy for her songwriting and gained her a growing legion of fans nationwide, Bonnie Bishop. Let me ask you this, how do you discover the bands that you love, the songwriters that you're obsessed with? Maybe a friend tells you to listen. Maybe you heard it on the radio. Maybe a video came your way and you couldn't stop watching that person play their guitar and sing into your mind. The more I think I know the great writers and singers lurking in the shadows of the roots music world today, the more I realize my own ignorance. Nashville, for example, is a maze filled with devastatingly talented and completely unheralded performers who have honed their craft in the shadows for decades, sometimes writing for others and waiting, waiting, waiting for their shot, and oftentimes giving up and going back to plan B and C when the money and the hope and the inspiration finally runs dry. Bonnie Bishop has put in the time, has put in the hours, and you can hear it in her voice. It's a deep, Careworn instrument that makes you believe every heartache and fatal twist of fate she sings about. I was able to catch up with Bonnie for a talk above the city winery in Nashville after she sang what was probably her seventh set of the weekend, and I loved how she described that certain jangly howl that comes into her voice after too much good hard work. Some call it damage, she said, and some call it style. You can probably tell that my voice isn't at its best right now. That's probably because I'm in the middle of a crazy month-long tour in Europe. If you really listen, you can almost hear the church bells ringing over the canals here in Groningen, Netherlands. And you know what? I sympathize with Bonnie because the voice sometimes needs that grit. It needs that extra push to feel what you really feel inside. A smooth voice, an operatic voice, it's not rock and roll. It's just not. And someone like Bonnie, she used to sing opera. She used to have a high, crisp, sweet voice. You know what? She's a different person now. But you know what? That's the person I want to hear. And since we had that talk, she's released a powerful new record called The Walk, produced by revered drummer and song whisperer Steve Jordan on 30 Tigers. And after one month of renewed sobriety, Bonnie is trying to be grateful for the good things at long last that are coming her way. Because it's been a long road. Like many of us, she was a hot 20-something-year-old who thought Austin and Nashville would recognize oncoming greatness like a train coming into the station. But things went a little bit differently. It took her 15 years to get that first record deal. But when she did, she got to work with Kingmaker Dave Cobb on the stunner Ain't Who I Was. And finally, the doors started really opening. She hasn't looked back since. And you know what? Once you cross towards 40, 
There is no backup plan. This is it. All in. We only worked in offices back in the day to steal the supplies to send out demos anyway. When most people's jobs are ending, ours are just beginning. Of course, the first person I thought of when I heard of Bonnie Bishop and her singing was Bonnie Raitt. And sometimes it takes an artist like Bonnie Raitt six records into her late 30s for anyone to really take notice. And sometimes it takes a painful divorce for Bonnie Bishop to create a song that would be recorded by Raitt and help her win the Grammy. No, Bishop's life didn't change overnight. Reality is a bit more sobering than the fantasy of winning big in the music industry. But Bonnie knows she is winning now. Things are happening, slowly but surely. People respect her, and the road is moving, and fast. And sometimes, that's the scariest part of all. What do you do now when the doors are wide open? So, without further ado, the very talented Bonnie Bishop. Texas and Mississippi. Um, found my way into music uh, through singing in choir uh, all my growing up years and doing competition choir in the state of Mississippi and stuff like that. And then um, I studied opera actually at the end of high school when I went back to Houston and was preparing for a career in opera um, when I went to college and I realized after the first semester that there's a lot of rules mm-hmm. uh, when you are in the classical world, you know, things that aren't allowed right. because it's all about, you know, the vocal is supposed to be completely free and, mm-hmm. and to vibrate. You know, your little vocal cords are two little sheets of paper that, mm. you know, in a perfect world, they're fully lubricated and mm-hmm. rested and haven't stayed up all night drinking booze or smoking weed or screaming at football games. And those right. were all things that I loved to do. Yeah. And so I kind of made that choice real early on in college like oh you like you have to get really serious about like your lifestyle if you want to sing opera and I was like I'm I just know myself too well I'm, I want to have a good time <laughs> I also feel like being nice to your vocal cords is something that is hard to do if you're a social person it is because just talking in a bar with that's the worst friends thing and fans you. yeah talking is the most dangerous thing and we do it all day long yeah so, you know, then then when I got into writing songs and put a band together and went on the road, it was like, well, we talked all day in the van and then we drank all night and then we smoked all morning. And then it's like, yeah. you know, my voice went from lyric soprano down to kind of like a mezzo alto, you know, and, and I'm kind of finding my sweet spot. I mean, I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm not recommending uh, vocal coaching through, you know, right. Jack Daniels, but that and singing on really bad PAs for the yeah. first 10 years of my career, you know, changed the sound of my voice and gave it a texture. You know, some people call it damage. Other people call it, you know, call it style. So... Well, it has that smoky, yeah. uh, you know, gospel blues thing. Yeah. And know. it's smoky because it smoked and it lived in smoky bars, you <laughs> yeah. know, so... 
When did they ban smoking from Mississippi bars? Or is it still going on? Uh, I don't know. I know in Texas they banned smoking um, somewhere around the time I left Austin, I want to say. It's like 2007, 2008. Yeah. And I moved up here, and I can't remember if there was smoking. Maybe some bars had smoking and some didn't. But I had a drummer that smoked damn cigars. While he played? Yes. If there was a smoking bar, he would smoke a cigar. Now he yeah. got in a lot of trouble for that. Like people would complain about cigar smoke, and he'd turn around and be like, well, your secondhand smoke is killing me. You know, but Cigars, I feel <clears> like, have a more gentlemanly smell to them. Uh, I don't know. I think they stink. I think it all stinks. Yeah. I mean, but people think weed smoke stinks too. So it's like you know, we all tolerate each other in life. What is your worst <laughs> vice currently? Uh, talking Carbs? without thinking. Okay. <laughs> Speaking without thinking is no my filter. worst vice. Um, as far as things that I consume, I, I quit drinking a again a month ago. Um, you know, I don't feel like I'm an alcoholic, but I like to have fun and I can't seem to just drink one margarita. I want to have like four. Mm. And with the, you know, record coming out and the tour schedule we have, I was like, I can't keep up with this. If I'm drinking, I get too tired. It just wears my body down. You know, it's like I'm not a kid anymore. So I quit drinking a month ago. Um, so that's not a vice right now. Um, but I have, you know, I like to smoke weed. Um, I try not to smoke it all day, but I really like the first, you know, joint in the morning with a cup of coffee and my journal. That's like something I really love when I don't have anything to do. Just sit there and write for four hours. Yeah, because you, you know, you've <clears throat> gone into the creative writing world too, where you went right. back to school for a bit at the right. College of the Suwannee, right? Suwannee uh, yeah. School of Letters, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. What were you writing? Was it short stories or poetry? Or? I, well, I wasn't sure. I just, you know, I had done music for so long and I'd put out six, five records at that point. And I just, you know, I wanted to stretch out. I felt a lot of deeper thoughts that didn't really seem to have a place in commercial music. Mm. You know, I was living in Nashville and kind of writing in the Nashville mm -hmm. mainstream world, but right. I was having a lot um, deeper thoughts and connections that I was making in my own life. And so I thought that graduate school and creative writing would be a way to stretch out. And through that, you know, I ended up, um, I wrote a screenplay and I wrote um, a bunch of short stories. I did a series on my website called Story and Song, which was like the stories behind the songs. I love um, that. And then um, I also started uh, about a year and a half ago writing uh, a book about my stepdad who raised me um, mm. and is the reason we lived in Mississippi because he was the head football coach at Mississippi State for the last 13 years of his career. You're not an old Miss guy, big, are you? That's a big job. Oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a University of Michigan guy. Okay, so, we have no yeah. we have no problem with each other. Yeah. So um, I've been interviewing Dad's old players, and you know I also worked for him on the sidelines as a kid from like age 13 wow. to 20. I carried his cord on the sidelines, like in mm. the olden days. Um, so you're not joking about blowing your voice out? No, I was screaming games. at football games. Yeah, yeah, I was right there next to the head coach. Some of the biggest SEC matchups. Yeah. That LSU, Mississippi State, Florida, Mississippi State. You know, and um, of course everybody else outside is going. That's not a big matchup, but it was to us because yeah. our whole life depended on a win or a loss. Mm. You know, um, every year, you know, Dad's head is basically on the chopping block. So standing next to him for the games, mm -hmm. his whole life his family, his reputation, everything's online every Saturday. Mm. And uh, they wore headsets. Um, the coaches on the field wear headsets so they can communicate with the coaches that are up in the press box so mm -hmm. they've got the full view of the field mm. and we're down on the ground. 
And uh, back in the olden days, before everything went wireless, there was a 50 yards of cord, electrical cord, that basically tethered all the coaches from the 50-yard line all the way to either end zone so they could, like, walk up and down the sidelines. And mm. my job was to keep Dad from tripping on his cord. It's an important job. It was an important job, and I didn't know how to do it. And the only reason I wanted to be down there in the first place was because I wanted to, like, you know, look at boys because I was so boy crazy. I was 13 years old. And he brought me down there to, you know, toughen me up and to let me get my ass kicked a little, which I did. I got run over on the sidelines several times, and he did not help me up. <laughs> Looked right at me and was like, you you got to be able to get up on your own down here, girl. Do you think there'll ever be a female coach of a Division One team in college? I mean, I mean there's got to be eventually, right? Maybe a female football team. With a female coach, but I think that uh, I think the NBA is starting to ease into it. Like some of the assistant coaches for Popovich, it's really hard to coach a sport. I think that you've never played, Mm. and if you're coaching a sport at a high level like college academics Mm. or pros, and you've never been there on the field, you've never been in the pressure. I don't think that you have the authority to coach a team. Mm. It's just like. Um, like my new manager um, that I'm working with was a tour manager on the road, and he was a drummer on the road for the first 15 years of his re- of his career. Right. So he, I respect him, right. and I listen to him, yeah. and I take coaching from my manager because I know he's been where I am. Yeah. He understands, and I think there's a respect level that would be really hard that would be hard to translate if you've never actually done what you're asking somebody else to do. What do people not know about being on the road full time. That's like mm-hmm. kind of what I want to talk about. It's not glamorous. On this. It's not glamorous. Because it is not glamorous, but also like yeah. it's the the sort of waiting and the the downtime that can kind of tear yeah, at your brain the way, a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's a it's such a long road, you know, when I started out at twenty two years old, I mean I thought I was just destined for stardom and it would happen within three years, surely, yeah. because I was so fucking talented, you know. Yeah. Um, just needed to meet the right people. Right. And um, that was not the case. You know, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. And I'm putting out my eighth record, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't get a record deal till I was 35. Mm. I didn't have a manager till I was 39. Uh, you know, I did a lot of my own booking the first 10 years. That 15% um, can hurt. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just nobody wants to make 15% of nothing. Yeah. You know, if you're a booking agent and this band's making 500 bucks a night or 1000 bucks a night, yeah. and you're only going to make, you know, 50 bucks to 100, 100 yeah. bucks off that or 50, 150 bucks, it's not worth it for you to make 20 calls to that club mm-hmm. trying to track them down and get a date. Right. And that's the, that's something that people don't understand. It's like, well, this act is so good. Why doesn't anybody know about them? Right. They don't have a team around them. Why don't they have a team? Because they're not making enough money that they can commission mm-hmm. off 50% of their income mm-hmm. to all these various yeah. booking agents and managers and prom- promotional people and publicists that are supposed to get your music out there. So it's like the bigger acts always have a shit ton of money behind them. And if you can't raise it yourself or you don't have it, you know, I mean, there's some of the, I'm not going to say who they are, but there's some of the biggest people in our industry that, you know, got where they are because they had the money to do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they're not talented, but <laughs> they're not more yeah. talented than some other people. Yeah. Who, you know, there's so many people that bubble under now that I'm like, why don't people know about? But people don't know that story about Taylor Swift. 
which is fascinating to me. And she's worked hard and she's written some cool songs, but her dad bought a record label to sign her. Well, he bought the first million copies of her CD when it came out. Right. And he it's like... He purchased one million copies of her CD. And that is a, that is a thing that yeah. shows, I think, on one hand, how stacked the deck is. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, as a person who comes from parents who are belligerently <clears throat> supportive and mm-hmm. have financially chipped in at times, mm-hmm. right? You do need that army behind you to yeah. even have a slight shot. Yeah. Our mean, first I, I, tour would never have happened if I didn't like take money out of some account right. that I didn't even know was there. My parents have been there for me and had my back through this entire journey. In the beginning, my mom really was like, you know, I really think you should have a backup plan. Yeah. She was really worried. She just didn't want me to get hurt and fail and, yeah. you know, whatever. And my What would the backup plan be, you think? Fuck, who knows? I can't do anything. I had a job for six months right out of college working for a real estate investment company, and I stayed late to steal all their mailing supplies so I could put together press kits and yeah. use their free postage. They knew. Um, I was a nanny. I was a substitute teacher, you know. This and, is where, in Austin? Yeah, that was all in Austin. Um, and then I just was like, I gotta make this shit work. And yeah. I am not a nine to fiver. You know, I'm a very, I like to create and I like to be on my own schedule. And it's hard for me to like, just even, it's hard for me to just be uh, on time in my life mm-hmm. that I make my own plans for. So, um, I think if now, if I went back and did things again, um, I would have a part-time job doing kitchen type stuff because I love c- cooking mm. and dis- and serving people in that mm. manner. I love to create food and and I've done that part-time. Um, like when I went to graduate school, I worked part-time in a catering kitchen and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to put any makeup on, just wore yeah. comfortable shoes and chopped vegetables all day. And, it is funny how I think at a certain point in our mid-30s when you've been doing it for a decade uh-huh. or more, we start to like romanticize the yeah this other the, life the you other think jobs missed. that didn't have the pressure it's like you just showed up and the people that have the jobs that have pizza. the pressure yeah. are coming to your shows at night yeah. on the weekends and they're like man he made the choice and I was wrong I made the wrong choice I knew I should have pursued music because they don't see yeah. but everything in life is a trade off it's like right. that's the thing like this is a long journey and they think you're living like, they think the dream, I'm living so. the dream and yeah. I think getting to sleep eight hours a night mm-hmm. having a stable home um, some of those things are you know to me that's a dream now that wasn't didn't exist before mm-hmm. and now it's like I, there's no way for me to um, stay home for months at a time yeah uh, at this point like I make all my money from playing live shows like that's it if mm-hmm. I don't go out and tour my world doesn't revolve financially yeah. you know so um, there's you take you take that for granted when you go to a show and it's like your day off, you know, everybody else has worked all day and they're coming to let loose. Well, our day is starting at four o'clock in the afternoon Mm -hmm. and it's going to go till four o'clock in the morning, you know, Mm -hmm. by the time you load out and get to wherever you're going and actually get some sleep. So it's not glamorous as you ask, like, what do people not know? And it's not that it's not fun, but you have to like make it fun. Like I find the older I get, the more tired I am. So the more I have to like, that's why I quit drinking again it's because like I've got to generate energy and good vibes yeah. so that I get on stage and have something to give yeah you know like my whole thing is like how can I be in a good mood all day so that when I get on stage mm-hmm. I'm happy and these people are happy do you feel like you have a separate persona when you get behind the mic and the lights turn on I feel like I'm supposed to and I'm fighting that you know I did for years in Nashville especially you know because it's such a um, vapid 
uh, media-driven industry, you know, the music businesses. And in Nashville, it's like where they're cultivating the next star. It's like as somebody trying to like build your career here, mm-hmm. you always feel like, you know, you're you got to figure out what your thing is, and you got to step up. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you got to look the part, you got to dress the part, and you got to put the pictures out and yeah. all this stuff. And it's like when I get to the mic, what I want to feel is just like I do at rehearsal, like just relaxed with my friends, making yeah. music, having fun. It's really hard to get to that place when you've been driving and unloading and you've slept three hours mm-hmm. and you're going to do it for eight more days in a row. And maybe there's somebody in the band that pissed you off and you're like all traveling together in this little like, you know, vacuum of a van. And, um, you we know, should, we should tell people at home we are in the belly of the beast in Nashville right now. Yeah. And there is a, uh, an environment here that feels like this pressure cooker. Absolutely. But it's also such a great confluence of talent Yeah, it makes around. you be better. Yeah. Because you're around people that are no doubt, you're like, that person is better than me. Like, they worked harder, they worked longer. And it's kind of like, I always say that people who move to Nashville, they know after six months, they're either going to stay there and they're going to get dig deep and they're going to grow uh-huh. or they're going to go home. Well, it's it funny because people long. get intimidated when they come out to L.A. And a lot of yeah. people don't book shows in L.A. because they're like, well, we can't. Uh-huh. We don't know if anyone's going to show uh-huh. up and we don't want that look if it's uh-huh. a half-empty house. But I feel more intimidated when I come here to play. I believe it. I because believe I feel it. that people are looking <laughs> for the angle. Like, what is this guy? How do guy? I sell this? What What's genre? This, is this the guy I'm going to tell everybody about, or am I going to walk out the door and <laughs> yeah. never mention him again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, someone like you, right, and I listen to a lot of Roots music, has never crossed my path for any way. And that pisses me off. Because as I listen to your records, I'm like, this is exactly in my wheelhouse. Why hasn't this been... It? funneled to me yet but that's why I'm here right because enough people mention you right and when I say hey have you heard of this woman Bonnie Bishop their kind of eyes light up a little bit right because they respect you and they know you as sort of this secret almost you know and my my hope (laughs) I'm a secret now I feel better about my career now I know but I'm saying is that better than being (laughs) but it takes enough people having that secret where it's no longer a secret right 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 and it takes Forever, 25 years. You know? I mean, it happened to Bonnie Rage. She's one of my yeah. idols. And I, you know, that's why one of the reasons I looked up to her so much all those years I was coming up, because she didn't have, she didn't get industry, like widespread indie, industry support until she was 39 mm-hmm. and had made, I don't know, eight or nine records before that and, mm-hmm. and built it on her own. You know, um, she, I don't think she had much help from her dad. I know that he was a professional singer, but. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I know that she was in a van for a long, long time. She built her own crowds. And by the time all that radio success happened with something to talk about, she already had a career. She didn't need that. Right. It was just <clears> kind of <throat> like I see. That was so everybody else could start getting paid. <laughs> she and her band had a career, and they would have always had a career. But that you know? that talk that she had on, on NPR <clears throat> over a couple <throat> years ago really stuck with me because she was saying how people ask her, like, why don't you write another pop yeah. album that I care. Why and she, she goes because the people who actually support me and will continue to support me don't care about. They don't, yeah, they don't care about the radio. Hits. Like I play the blues. That's right. That's right. You know, and she's like, "That's how I do it." And that was a fun little yeah. journey there, but that's not necessarily yeah. me. Absolutely. Like eventually, you have to find who you are. That's how I feel about my "Ain't Who I Was" record. 
mm-hmm. which I didn't catapult to success like Bonnie Raitt at that point. But that record for me was, okay, somebody wants to help me really get in the game. 30 mm-hmm. Tigers was like, we want to make this record with you. We want to hook you up with Dave Cobb. Here's Dave Cobb. I play Dave Cobb my songs. He picks the ones. Mm-hmm. He kind of like chisels them, help me steer me towards some covers like Mercy, which I love. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that was, it was a planned venture. Mm-hmm. And it was planned to get me in front of people who hadn't heard any of my music before. And I got great like write-ups, you know, in New York Times and Washington Post, and started playing some really great venues. And, and everything Dave touches turns to gold engine. right now. Yeah, I think I turned to bronze, turned which is fine. I love bronze. bronze. I'm a fan of bronze, actually. Um, but you know, this new record that I'm that I made last year, that's coming out in two weeks. That was I I chose Steve Jordan to make that record because it was a lot of the deeper messages that I told you, you know, when I left Nashville and was exploring graduate school and exploring these deeper thoughts. Um, and I, that's what all these songs were mm-hmm. and they were pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And so I'd always wanted to work with Steve cause I was a huge fan of his drums and mm-hmm. got to know him through the continuum record and kind of followed along. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I, this is the guy to create the beats that I need mm. so that people can hear receive these deeper messages. And so Yeah, drummer producer, you don't see that too often. No. Awesome. No. And he was so great to work with and so encouraging and just, you know, wanted me to play piano on the record, wanted me to play acoustic and you know, we brought in other people. Um the only person I didn't know that he brought in was um the bass player, but I brought Jimmy Wallace with me. Who I wrote songs with him for years. Great piano player. My boyfriend Ryan played guitar. Had some friends stop by and sing harmonies, and you know, really, um, this this last couple years journey has been a lot of. I'm always introspective, and you know, a lot of my music has that redemptive quality. But I'm I'm this record has more of a, a gray tone to it in that you know dealing with kind of just some midlife. Mm-hmm. stuff like the realities of how long the walk of life can mm-hmm. feel at times the drudgery mm-hmm. the down times we we're talking about like how you know years go by sometimes with nothing happening and you're just kind of practicing and doing your thing and living limbo. life and yeah and um you know so the whole record has this kind of mid-tempo beat there's not really any up-tempo stuff on it but it all grooves and it all moves and it's a 45 minute record of seven songs Mm. So we really stretched out and had a great time. It's like um, a super EP. It is a super EP, yeah. Um, and so you know that that this part of uh, of the walk of my life is is good. It's 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 gotten heavier recently. I buried a very good friend of mine last week, a mm. great singer, and that has kind of given me a whole nother perspective of life Mm. that I wasn't familiar with before Mm. and is you know has been fueling things recently and just like bringing a lot of these lyrics home for me Mm. you know and um, I feel like this is this record is the truest expression of who I am all the way from the artwork to the live performance and every happiness under the sun is is that the first single that's the first single that we put out yeah Mm -hmm. and that's sort of a uh an encouraging kind yeah. of uh, light at the end of the tunnel song. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about gratitude yeah. and and the power of gratitude to change your attitude. You know, it's very hokey to say gratitude change your attitude, but it does. Yeah. And um, How do you say, this is one of my biggest challenges, how do you stay 
grateful when you always want more than you have. Yeah, I have, I have to practice it. And I, I struggle with this because, unfortunately, I am naturally a glass half full person. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, a glass half empty person. But you want to be I a want glass to be half really bad. Yeah. I really do. Um, and so, you know, I there's a lot of spiritual texts that talk about gratitude and mm-hmm. practicing mindfulness mm-hmm. and all these things of like thinking about what you have that's good, being out, thankful for it, writing it down. Um, that's something that I'm I'm doing is I'm mm-hmm. every day I'm trying to write it down. It's just fle- free form, like write down all the things. Like today I wrote, I'm grateful, you know, for a great band. I'm grateful for my new green dress. Mm. I'm grateful for um, my health. I'm grateful for uh, the ability to make a living playing music. You know, it's just like whatever. I'm grateful for this avocado, like whatever. <laughs> and sometimes it's the little things, you know, like when we really, because you're most of your life is little things. The big things happen so rarely that it's the little things that I feel like if you really look at the things you have every day and go, okay, I'm going to work really hard to see what's good in my life today because it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel good to walk through the day being like, this is okay and that's beautiful and oh, I like this flower and I'm going to have a great lunch. You know, because again, it's like m- most days aren't big shows and big events and proposals and mm-hmm. it. most days are getting up, getting dressed, having breakfast, going to work, seeing your family, mm-hmm. seeing your friends, going to bed, getting up, doing the whole thing again the next mm-hmm. day. So I feel like, especially on the road, practicing the things that I'm grateful for and trying to outwardly reflect that and let gratitude be what drives me to this microphone instead of, I hope you like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because eventually it's never enough, you know? Right. Even if you play, you know, the biggest stage, that's over in about yep. an hour and a half. Yep. You know, it's yep. one blip Even if time. you win a Grammy. Yeah. That happened eight years ago or whatever it is when people win their awards or have their big moments. Did it change anything? It changed uh, like everybody else's opinion of me. Yeah. <laughs> and it gave me a lot of confidence and it gave me a new friend in Bonnie Raitt. And to have like one of my heroes as a friend is a source of encouragement for sure. Yeah. What was the song that won for that? She wrote uh, or she recorded Not Because I Wanted To. It was about my divorce. <laughs> you know... Who knew that such a good thing would come out of something so painful? Well, you got to make something good come out of it. That's another practice, too. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to find the silver lining. You know, That's what every happiness in the sun says. I see the silver lining. I was Love talking, is ever shining. We were talking to, you know Raylan Baxter? Yes, I do. I love his stuff. We were, I think we were talking about there's so many falling in love songs and falling out of love songs. Yeah. There's not that many divorce songs. About the middle. Songs. That's right. The middle is boring. But like the middle is boring. The the divorce sort of sharks in the water uh-huh, trying uh-huh. to like keep the blood from tearing uh-huh, each other. Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. I mean, do you process pain in songwriting immediately or does it take time to process? I pro I start processing pain pretty immediately as it's happening. It's a lot harder as I get older to put it into song. Mm. Because um, when you're writing prose and stuff too, and that yeah, yeah, but it's like there's this thing connected to songs called commerce. You know, Mm -hmm. I make my living playing songs, so there's this whole filter thing that happens, and I don't want it to. Right. But where like um, I start to filter my pain through. Okay, I'm gonna write this song, but oh, I don't want to say that. You know, it's like so. How vulnerable do I want to be? So it takes me a while to get to 
the song sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just me. That's just where I am right now. I didn't used to be like that, but I've started holding back a little bit. I haven't been writing as many songs as I used to, and I'm okay with that. Well, there's there's the two sides, I think, of songwriting, where there's the fantasy creative writer, mm-hmm. right, where you want to write about Bonnie Bishop on a spaceship talking to Gandhi. Right, right. right? It's never happened, but, right. man, that well, would be an interesting like story. Rocket Man. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Rocket Man, right? It's a creative writing exercise of you in this other world. Yeah. And then there's Bonnie yeah. processing her divorce. Yeah. Right? And Do, Am I willing to let everybody read my journal? That's the question. Right. But it's also know? like gaining monetary benefit from right. your own pain right. and sort of hardship exactly. is sometimes and it's hard somebody to else's story too in that yeah. case it's like I mean I ran into my ex-husband seven years after the fact uh-huh. and that was one of the things he said he's like I hate that song <laughs> every time it comes on and I'm like that's okay he, he hated he it when it was, I wrote it he, he knew it was about he hated him. it when I wrote it yes and I wrote it before we were even married that's the worst oh, wow. part I wrote it about a divorce that would happen a year later wow and so he said it the night I brought it home he goes I don't ever want to hear that song again and then it came true and Bonnie Raitt cut it and he hears it whenever he listen, <laughs> listens to the radio or runs into it you know well you know what it's you know it's at a certain point it's fair game if you're in love with a creative songwriter. person well they always songwriter. say that beware She's gonna write about you, you know. I mean, think of all the hate songs. Think of all the songs like that we've written in in you know. I mean, all, all songs are about love, losing love or finding love. Really, they are. But I find that when I'm almost happiest, the 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 seesaw goes the other way. Where I'll write a really dark sort of murder ballad type thing. When you're happy, because it almost has to mitigate. Like what if from it. what if something really bad happens right, right. to this girl I'm falling in love with? Right. And then when I'm feeling bad, I want to like mm-hmm. juice myself mm-hmm. with some sort of hopeful mm-hmm. future. You mm-hmm. know. I understand that. You know. Um, let's do one creative exercise before you head back to Texas. Okay. Because I know your boyfriend's waiting in the car. Yeah. Well, the van, the band is waiting in the van and my boyfriend has not slept in three days. Annie's playing lead guitar and he has to like carry my shit around. I'm grateful we could get this. It's a very thin line. I'm walking here. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to say the following words. Okay. And you are going to think of a moment of your life that this jiggles loose. Okay. Okay. Velocity. Oh man, I wish this wasn't the first thought that came to me, but my friend passed away in a a car accident a couple weeks ago, a week ago, a Mm. week and a half ago, and she was on her way to her gig. She'd driven 12 hours across the country and then died a mile from the venue. God damn it. God bless it is what I've been trying to say because that's what I was saying. What was her name? Kylie Ray Harris. Oh, we heard about her, yeah. Um, and Velocity was something that always drove her career just because she was a single mom. Mm. And she was racing around Texas and driving her baby to Oklahoma so she could go back and do gigs in Colorado and then racing back to pick up the baby so she could go home and like have a couple normal days and then she could go on the road. Just constantly on the road and mm-hmm. constantly, you know, we all speed to get to our gigs, you know, like mm-hmm. trying to trying to make our lives work on the road. There's a lot of speed mm. and um, I don't know that speed would have changed things for her but Mm -hmm. I know that the velocity with which 
my friend was fully alive and at the best part of her life and mm-hmm. then was gone yeah. is very hard to accept. And I know there's a lot of people. I mean, but it could have been you. Yeah. It's sh- sh- sometimes I think it should have been. She has a little girl. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's just quit. Life is life is very fast and we don't even know how fast you never know how mm-hmm. fast it can be and that is a reason to appreciate and to savor it and it's it's I hope it slows me down mm. I really do and I'm gonna sing a song with that yeah if you don't mind let's go from there which one this is The Walk this is the title track off the new record I bet you haven't heard this one yet Well, the past is never dead, they say Maybe we'll meet on the walk someday Heal and love can save. Then I'll know the truth when I see your face.
Big thanks to Bonnie Bishop for finding the time to talk with me. You know, sometimes these conversations are planned weeks or months ahead. There's publicists and managers and all sorts of in-between people who connect us together. But you know what? Bonnie and I came together almost by accident. And we were in Nashville at the same time. We found a dark room and we were able to talk. And I'm really, really glad that we did. Her newest record is called The Walk. It just came out October 4th on 30 Tigers, produced by the wonderful Steve Jordan. And uh, you can get that wherever music is found these days. Her music and her tour dates are on bonniebishop.com. And you know what? She's going to be in Europe, where I am, this week. She's playing the same festival that my group Dust Bowl Revival is, October 19th at the Ramblin' Roots Fest in Utrecht, Netherlands. It'll be a really special night. There's going to be some great, great artists there. Robert Ellis will be there as well, and I believe I will be talking to him. Uh, She will be going across Europe and then coming back for some record release parties at uh, the Tin Pan in Richmond, Virginia, October 30th, the Evening Muse in Charlotte, North Carolina, October 31st, and uh, playing in my hometown of Evanston, Illinois, with Mark Cohn at Space, November 12th. Uh, Mom and Dad, I know you're listening. You should go to that show. I'm going to tell you here first, folks, uh, my band Dust Bowl Revival will be releasing a single in the next few weeks. Really exciting. It's the first glimpse of our newest record. All of that is coming soon. Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to be going across the Netherlands and then into Belgium for a day and then over to Spain for the first time next week and then going to the United Kingdom to finish out this run in November. Love to hear from you. We can't do it without you. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.